Welcome to EAN Cast, your weekly source for education, research, and updates from the European Academy of Neurology. Hello, everybody. This is EAN Cast, uh, our weekly podcast episode from the European Academy of Neurology. My name is Barbara Tettenborn. I'm the editor-in-chief of the e-learning of European Academy of Neurology, and additionally, I'm the head of the Department of Neurology at St. Gallen, Switzerland. And this month, our EAN Cast has stroke as a topic of the month, and we will have episodes about the basics of stroke prevention, diagnosis, and treatment in our first episode uh, today. In episode two, we will have uh, information about the pre-hospital care of stroke patients. In episode three, we talk about the hemorrhages. And in the final episode, we have chosen stroke in women as a hot topic. And we start today with the basics of stroke. And uh, I'm very happy that as a guest, uh, we could win Professor Hanne Christensen. Uh, she is my today's guest and interview partner. She's clinical professor of neurology in Copenhagen, Denmark, and her special interest uh, is stroke. So I very warmly welcome you in our podcast today, Hanne. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'll just start with my first question. Can you inform us a little bit about the epidemiology of stroke and its burden on the general health costs? Well, stroke is a very, very common disease. Actually, one in four who are at the age of 25 years now can expect to have a stroke during their lifetime. The incidence overall is higher in men, but as women live longer than, than men, uh, and risk is highest in the highest age groups, more women than men will actually end up with a stroke. About 80 to 90% of uh, strokes, they are ischemic, and about 10 to 20% hemorrhagic. This means that in Europe, we have more than 1 million strokes a year. About 10 million people in Europe live with sequels from stroke, and about half a million die from stroke every year. And these numbers are expected to increase by more than 25% uh, uh, for the next generation. So, um, basically, the costs of, of stroke in the EU at the moment are at 86 billion annually. Stroke is one of the most expensive diseases uh, because people after stroke if they have sequels, need a lot of care. And these uh, costs are expected to rise by almost 50% during the next generation. And this is not to mention what's most important, and that is the pain and the burden of stroke on the victims and their families. Having heard that, it would be best to avoid the occurrence of stroke uh, as much as we can, being neurologists, and which means primary prevention of stroke. So what do you think are the most important factors to reduce the number of stroke in our populations? That is probably primary prevention, as you said, but this covers a number of initiatives. First of all, there are the individual measures. These are the things that we most think about when we're talking about primary prevention. And these are like to stop smoking, not drink too much, a proper diet and exercise. Um, you also need to keep, keep track of your blood pressure, prevent, uh, prevent thrombosis from atrial fibrillation, etc. But another part of it, which is almost 
probably more important than this. These are the societal measures, and that is about air pollution, reducing air pollution, and that are things like prioritizing public transportation and bikes over a car, which would both increase how much exercise people get and also the air pollution. It's something like a societal effort to reduce smoking in the population that could be by increasing prices, also alcohol by uh, making a minimum price on a unit of alcohol, and also what is probably even more um, difficult, that the stroke is one of the diseases where the inequities in health is most apparent. The individual can go and look, there's several ways of estimating your own risk. There's an app from, from, from the neurologist in New Zealand called the Stroke Riskometer, which is, could give yourself a very good estimate of your own risk and where to best work on yourself. And I think it's important also that we, we tell our decision makers that in a high-income countries, there's, there's actually a 20-fold return of investment if you go for primary prevention in reducing use of tobacco, improving diet, as well as medical primary prevention. So, so this is something where, where I mean, where this, with a return of money from the invest in the investment. Yeah, I think it's a very important factor. Uh, but once a patient had an acute stroke, what has to be done immediately? I think there are a lot of notes in the public that you have to call emergency to go to hospital as soon as possible. And we try to make the population alert for stroke treatment. What is the actual value of stroke units and stroke centers? So what can we do to help these patients immediately after the stroke? We can do a lot. We can really do a lot. So if we assume that the patient has already been taken to the hospital, then when the patient arrives, he or she will be met by a stroke team that all have specified tasks and responsibility and will include stroke neurologists, nurse, radiologists. They will ensure clinical evaluation to answer the question, is this clinically a stroke? Are there other issues? Is it really something else? Usually, then they will then um, proceed to acute imaging that both the options of CT and MRI and both modality have their own benefits or, um, over the other. CT is fast. CT angiography has a higher resolution than, than MRI angiography. On the other hand, we see the tissue and the ischemia in the hyperacute phase with MRI. So this will be at the digression of the treating physician or if there's only one option, but, but you can work very well with both. I think the optimal is to have the choice yourself. And then the treatment, what can we do? Can we give intravenous thrombolysis? This is a patient with a last vessel occlusion that needs to go for thrombectomy. Um, if so, uh, it, it's important to have a really good organization aiming to treat all relevant patients, be swift and avoid bleeding. These are really the main things. So we can do a lot in the acute field, and this will uh, improve the functional outcome of patients, not really mortality, but the functional outcome. But functional outcome is almost the same as quality of life, and I mean, that's what we all want. Then the patient will afterwards go to stroke unit care. Stroke unit care benefits all patients, especially the most severe cases, the old and the frail. There are no patients except those who have really minor deficits that do not benefit from going to a stroke unit. 
It reduces mortality. It also reduces handicap. And there's also, for the minor strokes, the option of choosing early supported discharge if that is something that's provided by your organisation. Stroke unit care is provided by the multidisciplinary team, including both therapists, nurses, uh, stroke physicians, but also neuropsychologists and sometimes in some countries um, social counselling too, and of course the logopediacs. Their main focus is on prevention of complication. The swallowing test is really what keeps makes people stay alive to prevent VTE, pneumonia, etc., to initiate rehabilitation and to complete work if it has not already been completed in the acute stroke unit. So there's a lot to do, and without this, the outcome will not be as good, whatever you do in the acute phase. Thank you very much for underlining the importance of stroke units and stroke centers. Uh, and once the patient has uh, survived the acute phase, got out of the stroke unit, what happens later on? after the acute stage. What can we do as neurologists to avoid further ischemic strokes? And what is the state of the art of secondary prevention of stroke? Because I, we know that uh, patients who had one stroke are relatively likely to get a second one if they don't change a lot or if they are not treated pharmaceutically. You're right. A stroke or a tear is um, a, a risk factor of having another one. And nobody wants that. So. Of course, you have to go through the non-pharmacological secondary prevention, which is basically the same as the individual uh, primary uh, prevention that we've already talked about. So I'll just jump into the pharmacological secondary prevention. And right now we're talking ischemic stroke only. I just want to underline that because there are some differences between ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke. First of all, you need to give an antithrombotic. If the patient does not have atrial fibrillation and during the workup in the stroke unit and the acute stroke unit care, you would have you will have worked the patient up with um, long-term monitoring, halter, etc., to find out if the patient has atrial fibrillation. If the patient does not have atrial fibrillation or uh, has no, not yet been worked up, patients started on platelet inhibitors in patients who have severe large vessel disease or who have minor stroke and the antithrombotics are initiated very early after the event, you can choose to put the patient on a double antiplatelet. Usually, the, if you use a single antiplatelet, depending on what country you're in, this will be aspirin or it will be clopidogrel. If it's double antiplatelet, it will in most cases be aspirin plus clopidogrel. As to OAC for atrial fibrillation, in most cases nowadays, we use NOAX or DOAX, as some call them, because this is much easier to work with and has uh, a little bit lower risk of bleeding. Further, you have to work with antihypertension. Sometimes when the patient is in hospital, it's impossible to find out what is actually the level of their blood pressure because uh, they are stressed by, by being in hospital. But this has the blood pressure has to be controlled, but not within the first hours. This is about prevention, and you have the time in front of you. Don't give too much so that the patient faints and hurt their heads. And then the statin is also um, the, recommended in almost all patients. Uh, most neurologists and um, 
um, and guidelines suggest that as long as the, the LDL is at least 1.5 millimolar, uh, then you give a statin. Most uh, neurologists use atorvastatin, which is now out of patent, so it's not it's not expensive, but this is best tested in, in the Sparkle trial. But basically, this is probably a group effect, and you can use whatever statin you have available. So, and then if you have diabetes, etc., then then you go for that. But otherwise, that is uh, that is the um, the secondary prevention. So, so there's a small room for individualization of of the treatment, but that is certainly one of the things that that we need to work on in the future. At the moment, the majority of patients have basically the same uh, secondary pharmacological uh, uh, prevention. You talked about uh, the non-pharmaceutical interventions already a little bit, but how important are they uh, in the long run, uh, like physical activities, diet, or other non-drug actions? I think one cannot phrase it often enough how important that is, but maybe you can just mention a few words about it. We are all certain that this is extremely important. Uh, and we know that stroke patients with stroke, they have less exercise than almost anybody else in the world. But we do not have randomized controlled trials where one group is exercising without, uh, and, and the other is not, or for, for these other measures, or quitting tobacco versus not quitting. So basically, we do not have this kind of evidence. We have observational data which does not have the same strengths, but on the other hand, it is the same that I found as found in any study, at least that I know of. My personal opinion is that exercise is probably probably the most important, and I'm just saying uh, at least at, uh, for of the many lifestyle advisors. Of course, people should quit smoking, and that is of course the most important. I should have mentioned that first, because smoking has the highest explanatory value uh, or uh, predictability in, in stroke. So people should stop smoking. If they can't stop, then they should reduce it going as far as zero. And they should be informed that this is important for their health. If a doctor, when they're in the acute admission, tells somebody that they should stop smoking, this is one of... Uh, This has a much stronger impact on the patient's motivation than if it's told 10 days later or by somebody else than the treating physician. So always look your patients into the eyes and say, stop smoking. As to physical exercise, this does not, this is, does not only have an impact by itself. It's also important as it reduces blood pressure, it reduces the level of cholesterol, etc. But it also decreases the risk of being depressed, which is also one of the things that happens to patients after stroke. And it's a very good way of starting to get empowered to start your new life as a patient with a chronic disease. There are observational studies, several observational studies, giving um, the indication that being regularly physically active with reduces the risk of a new stroke or tear by 50%. I, don't, I can't say this is high-quality evidence, but it's found in several studies. Uh, and personally, I think it's one of the things that I stress most with, with patients. I tell my younger patients that they should sweat and be out of breath. I tell my older patients, if they are disabled, they should get out of their house every day. I have At least two patients I've asked to bring their running shoes for the next visit to prove to me that they actually use them. Because people, 
it's not that, that people can't make their own decisions, but it gives this kind of being telling people exactly what to do and putting a little bit of pressure on them. We like that as patients because it makes the decisions more easier. And, and, and if it were me, I would also feel kind of seen by the doctor when they said to me, I want to see your, your running shoes. But, you know, we all have our own ways. Very good idea. I have to include it in my program that they have to bring the running shoes next time. I always try to tell them to do as much sport as possible and to increase their heart frequency, heart rate, and uh, that they really are starting to get at least sweating a bit to really call it sport. But bringing running shoes is a very good idea. <laughs> Um, so uh, coming to my last question of today's podcast, do you think that the access to stroke care is sufficient all over the world? Or if that's not the case, but I'm afraid that it probably is, uh, what has to be done to improve the care of stroke patients worldwide? I mean, basically, there are only a small handful of countries globally that provide reasonably equal access to stroke unit care. There are a few more countries, and I'm saying worldwide, and also in Europe, also in high-income countries. There are a few more countries that provide good access to IVT and endovascular treatment, me. Most countries actually provide some or good access to secondary prevention, though few countries actually prioritize non-pharmacological uh, prevention. Very, very few countries provide acceptable uh, access to rehabilitation, and even fewer uh, have a life after stroke program. So basically, the the, uh, the answer is clearly no, but also for high-income countries. And I think it's important to notice that there are a number of the um, countries in Eastern Europe that have actually, over a quite few years, increased their level of care so that it by far surpasses richer countries in the West. And I think this is important because this means this is this is not just a question of money. It's also a question of allocating money and using the money in the right place. So I think we need all of us to be aware that we need to advocate for stroke. Stroke does not re receive sufficiently attention. It receives far less attention and funding like ischemic heart disease. And the number of patients affected are only slightly higher for heart disease. And I mean, in countries like Denmark, if you go for global burden of disease data, the stroke is the second most important cause of death. I mean, this is one in four will have a stroke during their lifetime. This is not something rare. And so we need to both organize our stroke care and we need to organize it nationally or regionally. We need to follow guidelines which basically means spending the resources where it actually works. We need to focus on the entire chain of care from primary prevention through acute care, rehabilitation, secondary prevention, uh, and uh, life after stroke, and also have a proper program for monitoring and auditing and quality control, because otherwise we have absolutely no idea what we do. And then... We also, and when, if we go out and, um, and look at what happens, if we do not have this focus on the entire chain of care, what is basically the point 
of a successful mechanical thrombectomy if a swallowing test is not done afterwards and the patient then dies from aspiration or has a severe pneumonia. I mean, this is, this is not rocket science, but sometimes this is still forgotten. And we need to, to focus on that. And if we ask the patients what they feel they need, they say we should focus by far more on life after stroke and cognitive deficits and cognitive rehabilitation. So there's a lot to do. We have a lot of evidence in stroke right now. We have a lot of patients. There's a lot of needs, but there's also a lot of resources. But, but we need to, to, to stand strong and we need to advocate that stroke is uh, something we need to, to fight because it can both be prevented and treated. Thank you very much for these important insights and uh, to ischemic stroke. Uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you. I learned a lot again, as I do in each of these podcasts, uh, and uh, really nice having you here. Thank you, Professor Kirsten. Thank you very much for inviting me. This has been EANCast Weekly Neurology. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcatcher for weekly updates from the European Academy of Neurology. You can also listen to this and all of our previous episodes on the EAN campus to gain points and become an EAN expert in any of our 29 neurological specialties. Simply become an EAN individual member to gain access. For more information, visit ean.org membership. That's ean.org backslash membership. Thanks for listening. EANcast Weekly Neurology is your unbiased and independent source for educational and research-related neurological content. Although all content is provided by experts in their field, it should not be considered official medical advice.